Good morrow, friends. This is Jordan, and you're listening to Not Strictly History. Hello and welcome, everybody. Today is a very, very, very special day. And you didn't know that, but I'm going to tell you why. Um, This is the very first time that I am recording an episode sitting at my roll-top desk. Now, this is significant for several reasons. The first of one of them being that I've dreamt of having a roll-top desk my entire life. And I finally got one last summer, but I wasn't able to use it until recently when I moved into my own apartment. So not only am I able to use my roll-top desk, we're here recording an episode at my roll-top desk, which is just a double whammy of goodness. So welcome to the roll-top desk. And this seems particularly fitting because today is the first episode of Not Strictly History Season 2 that is Not Strictly History which is kind of funny because there is a lot of history involved in this <laughs> in this episode. Well, kind of, but I digress. I'm obviously super stoked to be here. I'm super stoked for you to be here. This season has been so much fun already. I am having an absolute blast re- researching, recording, writing. I'm just having so much fun and you guys are amazing and there have been Lots and lots of listens to my episodes so far, and it's really encouraging. And I'm just, thank you. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for listening. And we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep riding this wave of positive energy. And we're just going to have fun talking about history and stuff. And today, for our first not history episode, We are here for a literary episode, which is why it's particularly fitting that we're here at my Rolltop writing desk. Now, if you'll remember our last literary episode, I talked about The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck and how it was one of those books that I had to read for school, but somehow it ended up being a book that I absolutely love. That episode was so much fun to make and... It's gotten an okay amount of listens, which I was actually surprised because I don't know many people that would, um, you know, listen to an episode about a book they have never heard of before, but it's, it's been good. And it was really, really fun to make that episode. I want to try to do more literary episodes, but I don't know. You guys let me know what you think. Let me know if you had fun with that one, if you enjoyed this one. Um, and we'll just... We'll just see how it goes. I already have so much planned for this season, but I am always here for detours and all of that kind of thing. I was telling one of my friends the other day, you have no idea the amount of rabbit holes I have already been down when it comes to research in this season. Like, my friends, I spent two days researching an opera that didn't even make it into an episode because the episode is already going to be really, really long. It's not this episode, but I did. I researched the whole opera, and it was delightful, and I was really excited to tell you about it until I realized that the episode was already, like, 20 pages long. And so then I said to myself, self, we probably shouldn't talk about the opera. So I cut it out of the episode. But it's just an example of what's been going on. So again, now that I've been rambling for, like, four minutes, this season has been so much fun so far. And I'm really excited to have our very first literary episode. Now, listen. Remember The Good Earth? I talked about that book because it's a book that I absolutely love and adore with my whole entire heart. That book really, really impacted me and changed a lot of how I see and view, see and view things. Wow, Jordan. Those are two words that are exactly the same. Anyway, I really, really loved that book. But the difference between that episode and this episode is that today we are going to have just a a small chat about not not a book that I enjoyed and loved and changed my life. No, we're going to have a chat about what is genuinely the worst book that I have ever read in my life. And that book is called... The Buried Giant 
by Kazu Ishiguro. And I, we just need to start off, guys, by by saying just right off the bat, I am not here to shame Mr. Ishiguro at all. In fact, the more that I've researched this book and him, the more I've learned about him, the more I'm convinced that he is somehow a victim of this story. We are going to get into that, so don't worry. I'm just here today to tell you about this book, about my experience with this book. I'm going to express my thoughts and feelings about this book. That being said, fair warning, things are about to get heated up in here. So you guys just need to prepare yourselves because you had fair warning. I think that when it comes right down to it, my biggest goal with this episode is for me to be able to effectively communicate my emotions because it isn't just enough to say, oh, I hate this book or this book makes me angry or this book makes me sad or or whatever it is. I need to be able to communicate with you on a very clear and concise level exactly how this book makes me feel. And even though I did research and I wrote out and I have an outline and all of that jazz, I'm really nervous that I'm not going to be able to do that. But I'm going to do my best. So I just need you to take a deep breath with me and wish me luck so that I can communicate effectively. Okay. So let's talk about this book, The Buried Giant. I became acquainted with this book, The Buried Giant, during my master's degree while I was attending King's College London. I received my master's degree in medieval studies, which was lit. Let me, t- let me tell you, I should do an episode about that, but we'd be here for a really long time. Anyway, so I'm doing my master's degree in medieval studies, okay, and I was taking a course called Arthurian Tradition. And I was so stoked. My dudes, I was so freaking excited. For those of you wondering what Arthurian tradition entails, I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro here. It's a course that dealt with the whole field of study that is attached to King Arthur. It covered the history of King Arthur, as well as the extensive, vast library of literature associated with King Arthur and his court. People have been writing about King Arthur, his knights, and Camelot, etc. for literally centuries. And this class was a place where we just came to learn about all of this and, and discuss it. We were there to learn about the Arthur the man, if, if slash maybe, probably, we don't know if he existed. We were there to learn about Arthur the literary figure. We were there to learn about Arthur, the myth, the legend, and and again, all of the vast literature that is connected to King Arthur and his court because there is so much. And I was just really excited for this class. And in general, this class was absolutely fabulous. It was everything I needed it to be and more. I mean, anytime I get to read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and discuss it, I'm game. So if any of you want to start a Sir Gawain and the Green Knight book club, like I'm here for it. Sign me up. That story holds a very special place in my heart. That story is actually a really big part of my medieval history loving origin story. And I recommend you go read it. But as is so often the case here on Not Strictly History, that is a story for another time. But anyway, go read that. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So, as part of this Arthurian tradition course, as a class, we were tasked with the monumental task of reading this book, The Buried Giant. As it can technically be called part of the Arthurian tradition, the Arthurian canon, whatever you want to call it, because it is set in post-Arthurian Britain. Now, listen. Before we get into, like, the plot and the summary and everything, let's just talk about the book itself for just a minute because we need to. It's really important. 
This novel is, of course, a fantasy novel, and it was published in March of 2015. This book has four stars on Amazon. It's set in sub-Roman Britain, and it follows the story of an elderly Briton couple named Axel and Beatrice who live in a fictional post-Arthurian England. The driving force of this story is that nobody is able to retain long-term memories. So the author kind of took the Dark Ages as a huge inspiration for this story, and he also wanted to write about collective memory, about how warrior societies, both past and present, dealt with or deal with traumatic events by forgetting them which is an it's a real thing and it's a very very fascinating thing and again he wanted to write about this and he said quote this kind of barren weird england with no civilization could be quite interesting which i agree with here it is my friends mr ishiguro wanted to write about collective memory okay and specifically about how warrior societies cope with traumatic events by forgetting them. We just talked about that. Yes. This also, though, it's it's a much broader thing. This applies to society as a whole. This book is, is about, or was supposed to be about, the traumas that society experiences and how we remember them as a society. And it touches on the question, do we need to remember them? Now listen, my friends, my pals, my buddies, my dudes, this is pretty much my exact field of study, and I'm going to explain. As a medievalist myself, and one with a very, very deep love of medieval lore and fantasy such as Beowulf, I had very high hopes for this book. I'm also really, really interested in the subject of past societies and their perception of their own history. My professional emphases have been on issues of collective identity, which has a great deal to do with collective memory. So what I'm saying is that this book should have been right up my alley. It should have been everything I ever needed it to be. It should have been like my new set of scripture or something. It had golden potential. It addresses something really, really important in a very, very unique way. Or at least it attempts to. Now listen to me, friends, while I spend like just 30 seconds touting my own qualifications. I'm a published author, but I also have two degrees in history, okay? I am a trained historian with an emphasis in this exact area. So again, I'm not here to shame the author because maybe, again, maybe it isn't even his fault. Maybe he was possessed by a pile of literary vomit. I don't know. All I know is that I loathe this book with every fiber of my being. Not only did it ruin me as a human being, in my opinion, it also ruined the very beautiful field of King Arthur and Arthurian tradition. And also, before you go crazy, I am not calling myself any kind of expert in in Arthurian tradition or anything like that. Because I'm very much not an expert. Having a master's degree does not make me an expert. But what I'm what I am trying to tell you here, what I am doing is saying that I sort of know what I'm talking about in some things. And it has led me to the place where I find myself today, which is a place of loathing this book so much. But enough of me and my experience for the time being. I can hear you asking, okay, Jordan, so what's the actual plot here? And I'm gonna, don't worry, I'm about to tell you, ask no more. As I mentioned before, this book centers around an elderly married couple living in post-Arthurian Britain, and their names are Beatrice and Axel. Again, They are living in a society where nobody is able to retain long-term memory. And of course, they don't even know this because they can't remember. Axel kind of begins to realize this at the start of the book. He calls this forgetfulness that they all experience the mist, 
because things, they just kind of seem to slowly disappear from their minds. And he starts trying really, really hard to remember his past because he realizes that he can't, basically. And he and Beatrice begin to dimly recall that maybe, possibly, at one time they may have had a son and that maybe he lives a few days away in another village. So they leave their village in order to go and find him. On the way there to this village, they stop at, a, at another village for shelter for the night. And a, and a bunch of really, really crazy stuff happens. So it turns out that there are ogres in the area who are killed by a warrior named Wiston. And a boy in the village is bitten by one of the ogres. His name is Edwin. Now, the villagers are crazy superstitious and they try to kill Edwin obviously, because that's what you do with someone who's been bitten by an ogre, didn't you know? But Wiston is not into that, and he saves Edwin from the village people. But because the village people are absolutely crazy, Beatrice and Axel leave the village with Wiston and Edwin. And Wiston hopes that he can leave Edwin at their son's village, where he will hopefully be safe. This part of the book is so... I say this part as if it doesn't apply to the entire book. So convoluted, okay? From the moment Beatrice and Axel arrive at this village, there is something really icky going on. There's a bad vibe, my friends. There's a bad vibe. And you never really get any kind of answer. Like, yes... There are ogres about the people decide they want to kill Edwin because he's cursed or something now that he's been bitten by one. But like you, it just seems like there's something going on under the surface and you never figure out what that might be. You never get any kind of closure. You just feel icky, like something crazy is probably happening and something horrible is about to happen. And you just live in that fear for like what feels like 17 chapters. I don't remember how long it actually is. And then they just leave. And then they just leave. So there's that. Anyway, so next, Axel and Beatrice decide to go to a monastery to consult with a wise monk by the name of Jonas. Now, the reason they want to go talk to this Jonas is because Beatrice has been having a very sharp pain in her side. She's had it for quite a long time, and they want to go speak with Jonas about this pain that she's had. On the way to the monastery, they meet Sir Gawain, who is, again, a very important character in Arthurian literature. Traditionally, Sir Gawain is the nephew of King Arthur. And in this story, Sir Gawain is a very old man riding a horse. And in my humble opinion, this horse is the only character worth anything in this story. But anyway, in this book, Gawain's task in life is to kill a dragon by the name of Kirig. That cannot be how you pronounce that. They drink out of a Keurig. It's really unfortunate. Have you guys seen that video? Okay, we're going to get back on track. I'm sure the dragon is not named after the coffee maker, but we're probably just going to start calling her that. Anyway, Sir Gawain's mission in life is to kill, is to find this dragon and kill her. Because there's a fear that she'd be used by the King of the Britons, by who is named Lord Brennus, that if there's this fear that if he got a hold of this dragon, he would use her to kill the Saxons. So Gawain is trying to get to her first and kill her before something like this could happen, right? So they get to the monastery and they are met with, with hospitality, which you would expect at a house of the Lord. And, um, but then they get into to, to go consult with Jonas and he he confesses to them that most of the monks there are corrupt. And Gawain, at this time, he speaks to the abbot, and he believes that they're safe for the time being, and that they'll be protected at the monastery, and that everything is fine. The abbot, however, 
tells Lord Brennis that they are there, and he sends soldiers to kill them. Whiston, remember him? He's, he's our warrior dude. He realizes that this monastery was actually originally built as a fortress, and he uses the original structures to trap and kill the soldiers. And Sir Gawain gets away alone, and he's, he's riding alone. And this part of the book, all of a sudden you're just in Sir Gawain's head, and you have no freaking clue what's going on. And it's awful. But anyway, so he, <laughs> he leaves, and he's remembering his past. And he remembers King Arthur ordering the extermination of many, many Saxon villages, which violates which at the time violated a treaty that they had brokered between, between the two peoples. And this treaty was brokered by none other than Axel, our boy Axel, who used to be King Arthur's envoy, even though he's forgotten this, which is crazy. And Arthur, you find out when, you know, you're in Gawain's head, you find out that King Arthur actually ordered that the dragon be brought to where she is now and that a spell should be cast that would turn her breath into the mist basically making everybody forget the trauma this part of the book should be this beautiful aha moment okay because we're getting some important answers here we learn that axel used to be a really important man he worked for king arthur he was the envoy he, he made treaties between people like that's a big deal we learn that the whole reason behind the mist, behind the forgetfulness, is actually the magic of the dragon. And we learn that King Arthur is actually the one who ordered the mist to become a thing in the first place so that the people would forget that he had broken a treaty and massacred a whole bunch of people. Like, this is, this is a really important part of the book, right? Yes, it is. However, because of the way that it is written, you leave this part of the book feeling more confused than when you entered it. And that's the only way that I know how to explain that. It's just mortifying. So at this time, all of our people are running for their lives. Remember, Sir Gawain got away, but everybody else that we know and love is at the monastery running from the soldiers, okay? Axel and Beatrice have become separated from Whiston and Edwin, and they are somehow able to get away. They travel on alone. And as they're on the road again, they are persuaded by a young girl to take a poisoned goat with them and to take it to the lair of the dragon. And while they're on their way there, Sir Gawain joins them in order to show them the way. And Edwin and Whiston, remember our friends, so they're together. And at this point, Edwin starts to identify a voice that he's been hearing this whole time. He's been hearing this voice calling to him from, from since the creepy village. And at this point, he realizes it's his lost mother calling calling him to her. And as he tells Whiston this, Whiston realizes that his that Edwin's wound, where he was supposedly bitten by an ogre, is actually the bite of a baby dragon. Which means that Edwin is now linked with the mother dragon. And that they can use this link between them to find her, which is a big deal. Because Whiston is like, hey, I'm going to get rid of this dragon. He doesn't know any of the things that we just learned from Sir Gwait, right? He just knows, hey, it's a dragon. We don't want a dragon. So he's like, cool, we're going to go kill this dragon. As they get closer and closer to the dragon, Edwin starts getting increasingly crazed until he has to be restrained. So eventually they all, they all end up at the, at the dragon's lair. They're all reunited. And Gawain reveals to them that his duty wasn't to kill the dragon, but it was actually to protect her so that the mist could be maintained. 
At this point, Wiston duels, duels Gwen and kills him. And he then kills the dragon. And Edwin's madness departs. The people get their memories back. And he actually, as he's, as he's killing the dragon, he says, quote, The giant, once well buried, now stirs. Because they all know that this action of bringing the memories back will definitely cause the animosities between the Britons and the Saxons to return and it will start a new war. Now, just as an aside, okay, this is a fantasy novel where a wonderful warrior slays a dragon, okay? And I know what you have in your head, okay? It's a cross between How to Train Your Dragon and The Hobbit with every other fun fantasy dragon sprinkled in there, okay? You're thinking of an epic battle. You're thinking of, I don't know, Prince Philip killing Maleficent, right? Because you're killing a freaking dragon, okay? It's, it's, it's a big deal, right? Wrong! This scene in the book is absolutely horrifying. It's horrifying. Because they get to the lair of the dragon, and she's laying there asleep. And the author is talking about how she's a really old dragon, and she's not impressive anymore. And then all of a sudden, he just starts talking about this bush that's by the dragon. And he vaguely references the fact that Wiston is walking up to the dragon, and that there's nothing around except this this tree bush thing by the dragon and then swoop Wiston cuts off her head and all of the blood rushes over the tree brush shrub thing and that's how he kills the dragon that is your epic kill the dragon scene I have never read anything more excruciatingly boring in my life but let's continue so again now that the dragon is dead, they are stirring up the people's memories and a war is most likely going to start. At this point, Axel and Beatrice are recovering their memories along with everybody else. And they realize, they remember that they did have a son, but he, he actually died many years ago of the plague. And they get to the, the ocean. They get to, they get to the ocean. And there's a ferryman there with a boat. And he offers to take them to an island not far away where they can live close to their son. Now, there's a rule attached to this journey to the island, okay? Normally, married couples dwell on the island separately and they can't live together. But in very, very rare cases, couples with a deep and profound love can remain together. And the ferryman says that obviously Axel and Beatrice qualify and that he can take them both over so they can live close to their son. However, as they are about to leave, the waves increase and it gets really choppy. And the ferryman says that he can only carry one person at a time. Axel is, of course, very suspicious and that he's trying to separate them. And, you know, he's not into that. But Beatrice trusts the ferryman and asks Axel to wait on the shore while she's rowed over. And he agrees. And that's the end. That is the freaking end. Once, once more for the people in the back. That's the end of the freaking book. I have so many thoughts and so many feelings that I don't even know where to begin. But let me clarify a few things, okay? Remember the pain that Beatrice had in her side? And that's why they were going to see the monk, right? So while they're there, she answers a whole bunch of his questions and is telling him this is what's going on, basically. And he sits there for a moment and then he says, yeah, you'll be fine. But you know that she won't be like she's dying and he's just yeah you'll be fine so that's messed up 
And then all of this other stuff happens. And so they get to the fairy and her health has been steadily declining. And Axel is trying to go on the boat with her. And then the ferryman's just like, JK, LOL, smiley face. No. And he leaves. And Axel starts pushing through the water to go back to shore. And that's the end of the book. That's the end. Again, that's the end of the book. The next section in my notes is entitled, My Feelings. Because I have, I have so many of them. And I don't, I don't know where to begin. First and foremost, this is the most convoluted book ever written. People in my class tried to tell me that it was allegorical and edgy. But I'll tell you what this book really is. It's a dumpster fire, people. This book makes me legitimately angry. So, so angry. And the type of anger that I'm talking about is, is the part of this that's really hard for me to explain. The part of this that I've been worried about being able to communicate effectively. And I'm, I'm just, I'm trying, I'm going to try really hard because I want you to understand the kind of anger that I have towards this book. I'm not talking about the, the anger that you feel when a plot is bad. I'm not talking the anger that you feel when characters do something dumb. I am talking about unmitigated, unadulterated rage and sheer horror that this book exists. I'm talking about the fact that I read this book in less than a day because I was just convinced that there was no way a book like this could end without making things make sense. Except that it does. It does. And I remember finishing this book. I remember it very clearly. I remember finishing this book and I remember the feeling of my remaining faith in humanity leaving my body. This book was a waste of my time. It was a waste of my remaining sanity. And as you can see, two, two, three, almost three years later, it still makes me so mad. The, it's the way that this book is written. It's horrifying. It's absolutely awful. I hate it. I hate everything that this book professed to be and then failed to be. It's mortifying. It's an assault to literature. It's an assault to medieval history. It's an assault on King Arthur, on Sir Gawain, on dragons everywhere. Let's talk about that. It's absolutely awful. And what's more, this book took him 10 years to write. Listen to me and listen good. Just give up. If a book is taking you 10 years to write, I think you need to have a come to Jesus with yourself and realize that it's not worth it. I think you need to throw in the towel. And um, I'm that's how I feel. So let's move on from my feelings because they're many and varied and passionate. Let's talk some more about this book in general. This book was nominated for the 2016 World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. It was nominated for the 2016 Mythopoic Award for Adult Literature. And it took sixth place in the 2016 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel. I will say this. As a writer, it gives me hope that if this book can be nominated for awards and win awards, 
There's hope for anyone. There's hope for anyone. That's how I feel. So let's talk about the author. Because I've made, I've made it very clear how I feel about his work. But we need to talk about him. Because he's a great guy, actually. So he has been compared to Jane Austen and Henry James. However, he thoroughly rejects this. So he does actually have some self-awareness. And because that's the biggest heap of garbage I've ever heard in my life. But luckily, he thinks so too. So he was born on November 8th, 1954 in Nagasaki, Japan. His dad was a physical oceanographer. At the age of six, they moved to England. His dad had gotten a job researching for the National Institute of Oceanography, which is now the National Oceanography Center. Originally, our author wanted to be a songwriter, and he had a gap year just traveling through the U.S. and Canada, sending out demo tapes, which is so great. And he was a huge, huge Bob Dylan fan. So I'm getting Woodstock vibes, and I love it. I love it that we're, connect we're reconnecting with episode one here for just a second. I'm not saying he was at Woodstock. That's, that didn't happen. I'm saying he's giving me Woodstock vibes, and I love it. And he said about this time, quote, I used to see myself as some sort of musician type, but there came a point when I thought, actually, this isn't me at all. I'm much less glamorous. I'm one of these people with corduroy jackets with elbow patches. It was a real come down, which is hysterical. That's such a funny way to put it. It was a real come down. In 1974, he began his studies at the University of Kent at Canterbury, and he graduated in 1978 with honors with a Bachelor of Arts in English and Philosophy. He then spent a year writing fiction. Then the University of East Anglia came into his life. This is where he studied with Sir Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter on the UEA Creative Writing course, where he got his MA in 1980. His thesis actually became his first novel, which was called A Pale View of Hills, and it was published in 1982. But listen, guys, this MA program that he was a part of, it was founded by Sir Malcolm Bradbury, who he studied under, and Sir Angus Wilson in 1970. This MA program was a huge deal. Now, let me rephrase that. This MA program is still a huge deal. It is widely regarded as the most prestigious and successful in the country. It's incredibly hard to get into, and he did it, which says a lot about him and his abilities. And I'm here for that. I truly am. He gained his British citizenship in 1983. The Buried Giant is actually an exception to all of his other works. He usually writes in pers first-person point of view. His wife's name is Lorna McDougall. She's a social worker, and they were married in 1986. They met at a charity function in Notting Hill. To this day, they still live in London, and they have one daughter who is also a writer. Um, he has gotten a lot of different awards throughout his career. He actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. This, this winning of the Nobel Prize was, of course, given to him for his overall body of work and impact in literature. But he received it very, very close to the publishing of The Buried Giant. So it kind of makes me feel like that's why he got it. And honestly, I just have a really hard time coping with that line of thought. I have a, it's, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that. So I try not to think about it. Um, but in general, again, he's a wonderful guy. He's a great writer. And so this is why I've come to the conclusion that the buried giant just possessed him and somehow became a thing that was published and people read on purpose. Okay, so for your benefit, I reached out to some of my friends from my program who had to suffer through this book with me because I wanted to slightly refresh all of our trauma and I wanted their 
their current opinions on this book. I wanted to know if they had changed. So I asked my two very good friends from my program, my Italian friend Eugenia and my British friend Kat. And I said, okay, what are your thoughts on this book? How do you feel about it still? What was your experience reading it at the time, etc." And these, this is, these are the professional thought-out responses that I received from two fellow scholars. Eugenia, quote, OMG, I hated it so much. I read like two paragraphs and gave up, NGL. Cat, quote, I didn't read it. If that doesn't tell you what you need to know, then nothing else will, my friends. So for reasons that I cannot even fathom and therefore cannot even begin to explain, this book received generally positive reviews. For example, Alex Preston of The Guardian wrote, quote, focusing on one single reading of its story of mists and monsters, swords and sorcery, reduces it to mere parable. It is much more than that. It is a profound examination of memory and guilt of the way we recall past trauma in mass. It is also an extraordinary atmospheric and compulsively readable tale to be devoured in a single gulp. The buried giant is Game of Thrones with a conscience, the sword in the stone for the age of the trauma industry, a beautiful heartbreaking book about the duty to remember and the urge to forget. I'm pausing on purpose to gather my emotions to a place where I can continue. Actually, no, sir. That is that is what this book should have been and professed to be. It is not what this book actually is. Thank you. But it was not all praise, okay? James Wood of The New Yorker wrote, quote, Ishiguro is always breaking his own rules and fudging limited but conveniently lucid recollections. Which is funny. So, okay, but this next thing, you guys, this next little tidbit in the story of this story is a drama for the ages. Okay, so we have an author by the name of Ursula K. Le Guin who criticized this work rather infamously, actually, she criticized it on her blog for its treatment of the fantasy genre as a whole. Now, she's a very well-known American author who wrote science fiction, fantasy, and speculative fiction. She was incredibly prolific. She was a big deal, okay? So her words really mean something. And what she said was very impactful and, and crazy. So listen, this is what happened. So our author, Mr. Ishiguro, in an interview, he was asked, will the readers, will they think this is fantasy? Um, and they're asking this, they're referring to how the book doesn't necessarily focus heavily on the fantastical elements that it contains. Ursula Le Guin responded with a rather scathing blog post. Even I can admit to that, that it was, it was rather scathing. And she wrote in part, Quote, I respect what I think he was trying to do, but for me, it didn't work. It couldn't work. No writer can successfully use the surface elements of a genre, far less its profound capacities, for a serious purpose while despising it to the point of fearing identification with it. I found reading the book painful. It was like watching a man falling from a high wire while he shouts to the audience, are they going to say I'm a tightrope walker? my dudes. Basically, she was not into the fact that he used some elements of the fantasy genre in order to bring attention to a serious purpose. She felt that it was a mockery of the fantasy genre and its capabilities as a whole. She thought that he was dabbling in fantasy without really committing to it. That's what reading the book, that's what made this painful for her, right? And for completely different reasons, I also found reading this book excruciatingly painful, so I relate to that sentiment. However, our dear author responded, and he said, Le Guin is entitled to like my book or not like my book, but as far as I'm concerned, she's got the wrong person. 
I'm on the side of the pixies and the dragons. Sir, there are no pixies in your story. And the dragon is lame. Anyway, Le Guin responded, I am delighted to let Mr. Ishiguro make his own case, and I am sorry for anything that was hurtful in my evidently over-hasty response to his question, will they think this is fantasy? You guys, this little battle between them was epic, okay? Much more epic than, than, than this book could ever be, okay? There are tons of articles written about it, and I was just researching this. I was just drinking in all of the drama years after the fact. But holy moly, it was this little battle between authors was a huge deal. And honestly, like housewives level drama. And it was incredible. But it actually brings up most of the debate or criticism surrounding this book which are really ones of genre in a lot of ways. And people are always wondering, is it really fantasy? If not, what is it, etc. And our author said, quote, I think genre rules should be porous, if non-existent. The Buried Giants fantasy setting, it was, in his words, it was supposed to serve as a more neutral environment to explore the idea of collective memory and how societies heal after atrocities by forgetting the past, right? To be completely honest, in my personal opinion, I think that people get way too worked up about genre in general. So the genre and issues associated with this book are pretty pointless to me. They're not they're non-issues, in my opinion. My issues with this novel are not ones of genre, and they're not ones of writing rules within genres. My issue with this book is how woefully inadequate it feels for the issues it claims to address. No, actually, okay, let me rephrase this. My, my main issue with this book, the other, the other one is definitely an issue, but my main issue with this book is that it threw me into a convoluted, pointless, gray rage from which I can find no relief. In reality, this book characterizes collective memory as the mist, right? Which it manages to wrap around the, the reader's brain from page one. And the reader who continues to read this book, hoping for clarity, answers, or any point behind reading it, will be sorely disappointed. And that's what I would say if I was a legit critic. Thank you. Listen, I read this book two years ago, almost three years ago, two and a half years ago, we'll say. I read this book two and a half years ago, and I am still wading through the mist that it created in my brain. And I guess it's fitting that in the end, collective memory is restored and everyone remembers their past trauma because I will never forget the trauma that this book created in my soul. And yes, okay, I can hear you. You can make the argument that maybe this book was actually the best book I've ever read because it inspired so much emotion and has stuck with me for so long, blah, 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 blah. Literally, no. I do not receive that. I will not hear arguments of this kind at all. I hate this book. I hate how it made me feel. I hate how it still makes me feel. I hate what it claims and then fails to do. I hate this book. I hate it. So we have come to the end of this episode. And this episode is a little bit shorter than what we've become used to so far in season two. But that's okay, because I'm legitimately irate, and I probably should go meditate or something and, and try and calm down, because I need to go to sleep soon. The moral of the story is, don't read this book. Don't do it. Just don't do it. I realize that all of you are now going to go read this book because I specifically told you not to. But listen... You read this book and you become traumatized, 
you cannot blame me for the consequences. I warned you, okay? I lived through the trauma for you so that you didn't have to. So if you decide to go do this, that is on you. There is only one exception to this, and it is that I forced my little sister to read this book because I was so horrified by it that I needed somebody to join me in my misery. It was that bad. And after she finished reading it and was completely mortified, I threw this book in the trash. And that's not that's not a, a parable. Like, I threw it in the garbage. I opened the lid of the garbage can and I threw this book into the garbage. I threw it in the garbage and I regret nothing. Nothing except the fact that I read it. So read it, don't read it, that is on you. Thank you everybody so much for being here with me today. Um, I'm so happy we got to do a literary episode. We jumped back into that. It's been so much fun. I'm excited to do more literary episodes in the future. Let me know some of your favorite books, some things that we can discuss in the future. I'd like to do more of these if we can. I'm just so excited for this season. We have so many fun things coming up and I've said this at all of our episodes so far, but it's just been so fun so far this season has, and there's so many fun things to come. So I just, I just can't wait. And thank you again for being here. It's been so much fun. And just thank you for hanging out because I just, I feel like we're just talking and I love that. I love that so much. So you can feel free to DM me on the old Instagram. Give me a follow at not strictly history underscore podcast. Or you can send me a Gmail at notstrictlyhistory at gmail.com if you'd like to request something, give feedback, or just join the conversation. Any of those is more than fine. I'd love to hear from you. And um, we will see you next time, everybody. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next week on Not Strictly History. Mm-hmm.